0: Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek shareholder Mike King moderated a discussion of the future of healthcare within the context of the 2016 election, a topic often overlooked during this year's election discussion. With healthcare costs representing 18% of the U.S. economy, and one candidate promising to repeal the Affordable Care Act, the stakes for healthcare have never been higher convened by Brownstein's Healthcare Group, the panel brought together experts across the industry to discuss policy, business, and legal topics. Speakers included Brownstein Policy Director Kate McCannless and Strategic Advisor Barry Jackson, along with Quadriga Managing Partner Jason Ficken and Colorado Lieutenant Governor and former Kaiser Permanente CEO Donna Lynn.
1: My name's Mike King. I head up the transactional healthcare group at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek. Uh, we're happy to host this this evening together with our co-sponsors, Quadriga Partners and KeyBank. want to thank them in advance. So uh, thank you all for taking time out of your busy schedules, family time, fun time, whatever else you would be doing this evening to spend an evening with us focused on healthcare policy and what might or might not come out of this crazy election cycle. Uh, Just to set the table, what are the stakes? Uh, What might come out of this cycle? Well, if you watch the news this morning, Quinnipiac poll has Colorado at 45% uh, Hillary Clinton, 37% Donald Trump. However, um, this morning's poll numbers also has the two candidates in a statistical tie, essentially, in the key battleground states of Ohio and Florida, uh, incredibly close in North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, Iowa, Wisconsin. And so uh, your polling data here in Colorado does not necessarily dictate, as we all well know from 2000 and other election cycles, how that electoral map and the electoral math is going to play out. So it would behoove us to dive in and have an enlightened conversation around health care policy and where things might or might not go. With that introduction, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce our panelists. Uh, Appropriately, on my left, just slightly left of myself is our Lieutenant Governor, (laughs) Donna Lynn, uh, former CEO of Kaiser. So she's incredibly positioned to comment here this evening both from a government perspective and from a healthcare industry perspective. Uh, She is officially Dr. Lynn and was sworn in as Colorado's 49th Lieutenant Governor and Chief Operating Officer on May 12, 2016, widely respected as a leader in the private sector and an expert in the health field. Prior to assuming her roles in Colorado state government, she served as the EVP of Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Kaiser Foundation Hospitals, and as group president responsible for its Colorado, Pacific Northwest, and Hawaii regions. That uh, Hawaii region I might have to do some diligence on. To look into that. Uh, overseeing an $8 billion budget, 1.4 million members, and 16,000 employees. Welcome and thank you for being here. Uh, slightly left of myself, I don't know if that's a uh, double entendre or not. We'll find out here tonight. Jason Ficken, managing partner and founder of Quadriga Partners, healthcare investment banking firm. Uh, he has over 17 years of merger, acquisition, and capital raising experience. Prior to founding Quadriga, he formed the healthcare group at Headwaters MB, leading a team focused on buy-side, sell-side, and capital-raising initiatives exclusively in healthcare services. Uh, He is our perspective from the business and transactional community this evening. On my right, uh, both literally and figuratively, Barry Jackson, strategic advisor at Brownstein. The New York Times called Mr. Jackson one of the most influential figures in Washington and a force in Republican politics for more than 20 years. Forbes named uh, Barry to their list of the world's seven most powerful conservatives. Among many accomplishments in a distinguished career in public service, Mr. Jackson served as Chief of Staff for Speaker of the House John Boehner from 2010 to 2012 uh, during passage of the Affordable Care Act and was Speaker Boehner's first Chief of Staff from 1991 through 2001. Kate McCandless, Policy Director at Brownstein, with more than 16 years of legislative, regulatory, and political experience, she has advised clients across the healthcare spectrum, including physician organizations, hospitals, consumer organizations, healthcare information technology companies, pharmaceutical and biotech companies, nonprofits and health research organizations with regard to federal healthcare programs and policies. So, with all those introductions having been made, we're gonna jump right into the fray. And our goal here is not to have a a political food fight, but an enlightened policy conversation to see just where things may go with different outcomes that uh, are foreseeable. And I'll start, first question for our Lieutenant Governor. uh, Lieutenant Governor's privilege. We have heard from candidate uh, Trump that repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act would be one of his chief priorities in the healthcare care arena. What would you foresee as a consequence were that to come to pass? <laughs>
2: um, well, I think it's important to say and acknowledge what has the Affordable Care Act done to understand when you undo it what you're undoing. So as we know... 20 million people, which is not an insignificant number, now have health insurance, either through Medicaid or through the exchanges, and they didn't have it before. Um, There are, and so coverage is one issue. I think the other thing that um, we have to acknowledge is coverage of things that go under the category of essential benefits, which, um, you know, encouraging preventive care, making sure there is coverage for behavioral health uh, and so many other things. Also, you know, you repeal it, all those essential benefit um, provisions go away. And as we all know, and I'm sure some of you probably have people in this category, the um, elimination of lifetime uh, maximums is a huge issue, I'm sorry, annual maximums, because people actually quit their jobs because they may have a catastrophic need. I have a friend who's had two liver transplants and cancer. She literally left her job in order to get another job because she was hitting those maximums before um, the Affordable Care Act was passed. So um, you unspool all of that, and we have um, 20 million people uninsured again, potentially. We have a reduction in um, important preventive benefits that contribute to the health of the United States. And um, I'm not sure what the replacement is. I don't think I've heard that there's a replacement. It sort of let the markets do what they want. And as I mentioned to you, um, buy insurance across state lines, which I've been in this business 30 years. I've never understood how that will solve our health care problems. But um, so I think you are, we are two and a half, two and three quarters years into a um, very uh, well thought out um, concept, which is in order to reduce the cost of healthcare and improve the quality, we need to cover people. That's what every other country, uh, industrialized country in the world does, and that's why their cost of healthcare is half the cost of ours, and that's why they rank higher in health outcomes than the United States does. So I haven't heard the conversation other than the ideology around when you unravel it, how you would um, reduce our costs and improve our quality. So I think, let's see, can I pick a a word like chaos or pandemonium? (laughs) If you simply said, let's unspool it and start all over. And I think quite frankly, Most people are unhappy with their health care right now because of cost, but um, they're not unhappy because of their coverage, because they do have coverage and they can take their card and get coverage where they need to.
1: So uh, to frame it up for Mr. Jackson on the right, uh, in the words of our esteemed uh, Republican candidate, health care is a disaster. Uh, So if we repeal and replace uh, Barry, what comes next? Yeah, look, I, I, first off,
3: I think it's really important to understand, regardless of the outcome of this election, um, ACA is going to be amended. And it's either going to be amended, depending on your point of view, in minor ways or major ways. But uh, having sat at the table with Speaker Boehner and President Obama when we were trying to do the big compromise in 2011 and then again in 12. Um, the president recognized that there were things in the law that already at that point they could tell were not going to be working correctly. But there was this fear that if you moved legislation that you were opening this Pandora's box and you couldn't keep it limited to just a single thing about you know, redefining Cadillac tax or... Adjusting what the the scope of coverage is or, you know, a myriad of these things. So first and foremost, both Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump have said it's going to happen and it's going to happen regardless of the politics. It just has to. The the system as it's structured now won't, won't be able to continue. The second thing you have to remember in this regards is that in February of 2017, whoever the next president is, he or she has to present their first budget. And that first budget, most likely, according to what the Congressional Budget Office is forecasting today, is going to have something close to a $700 billion annual deficit. So the notion that you're going to go into ACA, which CBO now says is a cost driver, not a cost saver, and you're going to adjust it, and you've already got this $700 billion deficit, both of them are going to have handcuffs in terms of what they can actually do. Um, I don't think you're going to see a full repeal, though there's people on my team that think government has no role in this. Um, Clearly, there's things in the bill that make sense and difficult to roll those back. But... uh, you know, the lieutenant governor's probably right in the sense that not handled correctly, chaos, but I also think doing nothing results in chaos. There's so many, especially on the cost side, there were so many components that the administration has just delayed and delayed and delayed putting into place, and they can't do that anymore. And I think people are going to start saying, okay, we appreciate the effort. <laughs> But something's got to change. And this is why you see you know, Speaker Ryan in the House with their Better Way proposal, which you know, I, I think a lot of people view as just kind of an ideological, isn't this what Republicans always say, versus where Secretary Clinton seems to be going in the administration, which is, well, you know, if this whole private insurance thing doesn't work, it's just one step closer to a single-payer system. And... Um, and I know I sound like I'm Black Helicopter on this, but I just got to ask this question. You, you've got four of the major private insurance companies go to CMS and HHS and say, look, we're not going to be able to participate in the exchanges unless you allow us to merge. We've got to find ways to expand into different markets, and we've got to find ways to get more efficiencies out of the program. And then... The Department of Justice sues to stop the mergers. And something just doesn't seem right, because we clearly know that cabinet agencies talk to each other all the time. So I'm just wondering how the phone call from HHS didn't make it over to DOJ.
1: Well, let's come back to that. If I could uh, lean on Kate as a policy expert to comment on uh, what the repeal of Obamacare and, and the replace, if part of the replace plan is to... Remove regulation of insurance and allow purchasing across state lines. What are your thoughts on that idea?
4: Well, I think um, you know I, I tend to personally agree with the lieutenant governor. I'm not sure that that is the panacea of fixing health care. Um, you know, it, it is certainly a talking point. Um, it kind of overlooks the fact that we currently do have a system in place that does allow for the sale of insurance product across state lines, as long as the two states either have entered into an agreement or there is some basic you know, regulatory consumer protection framework. So there are places where the, that is an option. Um, you know, I think it is a talking point that has been latched on It's a talking point that, that is easy to communicate for a candidate that seems to have trouble communicating sometimes, unless he's miked. And so I think that... You know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that it, it may not be the, uh, the be-all, end-all... Uh, it certainly will help in uh, in some of the individual insurance marketplaces where there have been you know, such tumultuous changes, uh, and, and we're seeing uh, large premium increases year over year. It's interesting to note that um, I don't know if anyone in the room is familiar with OSCAR, the, the startup uh, health insurance company who's trying to do things a little bit differently in the the, uh, individual insurance market, Um, Oscar's CEO is actually a young man um, named Joshua Kushner, who may or may not be uh, and is the brother of Jared Kushner, um, who is the son-in-law of Donald Trump. So there may be a little bit of uh, a family dinner talk um, about the individual insurance market. So that could be one of the reasons that this is a political talking point. But I don't think that it is, it is going to be the, the, the thing that changes the entire system.
1: Thanks for commenting on that. We'll see if we have time for that later. We will be getting all of you into the game here. Uh, right around 6.45, we'll be doing audience polling Uh, You have the questions in front of you. I know you'll be studying up so that you can vote and vote often on your cell phone. Uh, Don't worry. The texting program that the firm has procured uh, is not one that will result in giving away your identity, your politics, uh, or your information. You won't be spammed as a result of participating. Uh, We paid for it uh, so that it would be uh, a secure line. So be thinking about your opinions on all these subjects, and you'll be on the spot here, not in the too distant future. Uh, Jason, as an advisor to corporations uh, and industry players, what are folks in the marketplace saying about the election cycle and what might or might not come of it? Is there indecision? as people wonder what might happen? Or are people proceeding business as usual? Yeah, I
5: think unlike whatever the polls may actually say, the marketplace is clearly indicating that Ms. Clinton is going to be elected. It is... Business as usual. And ironically, when you start to talk about Republican versus Democrat, oftentimes you have more of a pro-business leaning on the right side, but most of our clients, most of the participants in the marketplace right now really want to maintain the status quo. They want certainty because with certainty, they understand the rules of engagement and can actually pursue initiatives, acquisitions, capital raising, whatever it is. I think the primary concern, if Mr. Trump were to get elected, is that everything that has happened, good or bad, but the certainty that has come out of that would all be for naught, And that the unprecedented deal velocity that we've experienced, specifically in the healthcare sector over the last, really over the last five to seven years, um, would be abated because everyone would be trying to understand what are the rules of engagement on a going forward basis. Let's
1: tackle one of those head-on. So velocity of transactions, there are a lot of folks out there who think that velocity is too quick, that the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice should play a more robust role in pumping the brakes. Um, Then there are a lot of folks who believe that the Affordable Care Act is forcing efficiencies and that these efficiencies, many of them, can only be derived from business combinations. Um, Kate, what's the scuttlebutt on the Hill in terms of what may come out of the election antitrust-wise, one winner or the other?
4: So there's, there's certainly been some discussions uh, on the Hill over the course of the last 15 months or so, uh, specifically around stark anti-kickback laws and how, uh, how the, the ACA has made this ACO and collaborative model uh, obviously the, the way of the future, and yet there are many providers who are finding themselves in a conundrum, as you mentioned um, as we spoke about this, a lot of people coming with really great ideas only to find out that that's not something that you can do. And so the Hill has been actively engaged. The uh, The Senate Finance Committee and the, and the House Ways and Means Committee with jurisdiction uh, over these matters has been asking questions of, of industry players and associations. What can we be doing better? How can we uh, how can we be changing some of these these laws so that the ACA can be more efficient? And to be frank, these are conversations that are being had on both the Republican and the Democratic side. So I think that regardless of the outcome of the election and the potential flip in a Senate, uh, you could see this activity going forward as, as they recognize, particularly in the provider community, uh, that consolidation is a good thing.
1: So the False Claims Act was actually written in 1863 in connection with the government, wanting to ensure that it wasn't being built on its transactions with suppliers in the Civil War. So a lot of these laws, Stark, uh, Anti-Kickback, False Claims Act, uh, go back a very long way. And uh, in terms of antitrust, the DOJ and FTC have proclaimed, and as recently as this past week I've called some of my own contacts, that there's not an exception for the Affordable Care Act. There's not a permission to merge because the right-hand, and the left-hand are not necessarily on the same page. The Affordable Care Act is requiring efficiencies, and yet the FTC and DOJ believe that their mandate to uh, prevent undue concentration remains the same. So uh, stay tuned on this one. There was actually an interesting case out of Pennsylvania. The Penn State Hershey Medical Center was going to merge with Pinnacle Health System, and Judge Jones, in that case, actually for the first time recognized an Affordable Care Act defense to the merger that, well, you've been mandated to find efficiencies, so we're going to allow this merger to proceed. Now, that case was later overturned in the Third Circuit on appeal, not on the Affordable Care Act defense grounds, but on how that market was defined. So uh, I think we stay tuned and try to see what comes out of the Hill in terms of reconciling some of the Affordable Care Act's mandates with some of these existing laws that are still the same. So I get calls every day with uh, innovators in healthcare, let's do this idea, this would be great, this will really drive some efficiencies, and I have to say, time out, all the old rules apply. We still have Stark, we still have anti-kickback, we still have antitrust. So I'm glad you're creative and innovative, but we've got to live in in that existing regime. Uh, Barry, what are your thoughts on what may come out of this effort on the Hill? So I think,
3: again, if you look back at the creation of ACA, it was as much driven by trying to get the 10-year score, CBO score, under a trillion dollars. And so if if if, if Pelosi and Reid didn't have this directive and could have just written policy, it would have been a much different bill. They're trying to keep this in. So I go back to what I said earlier about you're going to see these changes. And I think a lot of this type of thing, rather than being driven by market rationality, is once again going to be forced, you know, square pegs into round holes because of scoring mechanisms. Um, and it, and I'll, it, I'll give you an example of this just, you know, it, it, it's, you know, we all remember being told if you like your, health insurance, you can keep it. Well, one of the things that people liked was that those who had HSAs liked their HSAs. And and one of the things they could do is they could spend their HSA dollars on OTC products. Well, because the scoring mechanism came out that, oh, well, you know what? If we take that away, it actually is going to provide us additional revenue within the bill. And so that helps us keep our under trillion dollars number. Well, you've now got this movement of people that are, you know, they're walking into drug stores, and if they buy a box of band aids by themselves, well, that's out of pocket, too bad for you. But if you buy a box of band aids that has medicated ointment, oh, well, that's allowable. Or if you buy aspirin, too bad, unless you go to the doctor. <laughs> And have your doctor write you a prescription for the acid, for the aspirin. So I think those kinds of things you're going to say. Kate, I'm sorry. No,
4: I was just going to say, you know, talking about driving efficiencies, as as a a parent of a child with uh, with allergies, if we are to walk into a a pharmacy and buy Allegra, you know, once a month for his daily uh, allergies, we can pay for it out of pocket. If we spend the money and take our pediatrician's time, to take him to the doctor for a fifteen minute E m visit so that the doctor can write the script obviously we 're costing the system a lot more money we 're keeping some other child out of the office that should be in there, but you know then we can use our hSA
1: well a little bit later we 'll talk about whether telemedicine is a potential remedy for what ails us there. Uh, seems like a logical candidate for telemedicine. Uh, I wanted to shift to the lieutenant governor on this conversation about how we drive efficiencies and constituencies trying to promote more mergers to ring efficiencies and achieve some of those cost savings that just have to happen. We have 90% of the public now has insurance. That's a great victory, but our costs are still nearing 18% of our GDP. So from your perspective as, as both a government leader and a healthcare expert, bundling, capitation – The Harvard Business Review recently had a point-counterpoint on the two, which happy to email if anybody would like to read up some light reading before bed. Um, So without putting you on the spot as to which of those two you feel is more effective, holds more potential to bring savings.
2: I will. I'm going to defer to Lieutenant Governor on that.
1: I'm happy to, but I want to get her in the game. So
2: and you teed it up nicely because there's something that Barry said that I want to challenge. Um, And that is that the mergers of Anthem, Cigna, and then Humana was somehow driven by uh, the exchanges. And so I want to clarify first of all because there's very different behavior in the marketplace. United Healthcare chose not to merge, but dropped out of the exchange. Anthem decided to merge, but stayed in the exchange. So I think it's much. I think it's driven by other. Market forces and beliefs, and so you know, bigger is better. I can negotiate and control. You know, it's it's what hospitals. I mean, in particular, hospitals and insurance companies or health plans have been going through for years, right? I get bigger than you. I can, you know, demand that that you know you be in my network, or I get bigger than you, and I can boycott the insurance company. So I think that's much more the dynamic than the decision making around the exchange because. The decision to merge with those companies was made two years ago. The decisions to drop out of the exchange were literally made in the last six months. And I've had one of the big, I'll say five, say to me, we don't even know because we don't have the data. And when you think about 2014, 15, and 16, setting rates in these markets is literally like throwing something on the wall. It's not predictable. And um, And that's what's for some people to come out of the market, as well as some of the losses, which I would let you know, too. Um, I'm from New York. I know a lot of the Oscar people, as well, and they're losing their shirts, so I'm not sure how long they're going to last in that market. Um, So, but it's connected to your question um, around consolidation and, you know, to your point, bundling and capitation. Um, So what's driving most of our costs is not unit costs. It's It's volume, it's number of services and um, while certainly you could point to pharmaceuticals and say it's unit costs of things like new drugs, um, in a lot of of other sectors it's it's what we call utilization. More things being done and many of them are good things but many of them add costs up front and maybe save money way down the road or you're avoiding potentially something down the road. So I guess I'm a fan, and this is old me, because I don't know if new me really should have a perspective on capitation and bundling, but we do run the Medicaid program in the state, and we have state employees. So um, a bundle of a payment, um, let's use hip replacement as a good example. Um, Instead of uh, every part of the hip replacement having a cost from what you do while you're preparing for your hip replacement, to the surgery, to care after the surgery, and there's lots of opportunities to um, take out the cash register, perhaps, and continue to increase costs. You say, how would you like a bundle payment for that? And Geisinger in, in Pennsylvania is sort of renowned for their work on that as well as protecting consumers from it didn't go right and now I have to come back into the hospital or I have to go into an emergency room or see a doctor for a related reason. So the theory behind bundle is it's a, it's a deviation and an improvement on our fee for service system where you just get, you pay a la carte versus a fixed price menu. How's that for an analogy? Um, but at the extreme end of more risk and maybe more incentives is capitation, which um, you know, having come from um, kaiser permanente that 's really what the system was founded on, which is paying physicians a capitated amount of money to take care of a patient, which theoretically gives them a reason to invest in taking care of them at the front end and not seeing um, them getting sicker and then generating more costs so um, I'm, I'm just personally still a fan of capitation. I think it works. I think there's ways to protect um, providers when, you know, they get some um, bad cases, as we sometimes say, or there's some change in the risk pool. Um, because I think capitation also gives um, physicians and other providers some independence from, you know, somebody breathing down their neck about the number and volume of services. So um, I didn't read the Harvard Business uh, article, but I will. And I think think to Barry's point too, the biggest thing the Affordable Care Act didn't tackle was payment reform, (laughs) and that's what we need. No matter what happens, we still are paying sort of oftentimes for the wrong things, too many things, and that's a conversation we have to have with every player in the health care system and how we, you know, short of um, price regulation, which, you know, there's lots of problems with, how we work on innovative payment models. But that was, and I wasn't in Washington, but I was trying to influence Washington in some ways, um, that would have been the bridge too far that probably would have resulted in the Affordable Care Act um, breaking uh, apart because everybody got nervous about what payment reform might mean to them
1: so in terms of emily to your question um bundling there are bundling experiments call them and kate i'll ask you to comment next on cms saying okay from now on a knee replacement is part of the bundle and if you do well within that bundle you make money if you blow it go over the bundled rate for the knee replacement you know, tough luck, too bad. So you know, a bit of a, a carrot and stick approach to saving money versus capitation where you have X number of lives are part of your program and it's your job to keep those lives healthy. And if you keep them healthy, you're going to have fewer incidences of care and that will cost you less money, thus creating a profit margin. So both creating you know, a bit of carrot and stick uh, diplomacy, encouragement to keep people healthy and keep costs down each in different ways.
4: Well, so I, I think I'll just say, you know, to the lieutenant governor's point, um, this decision is playing out right now in the regulatory space. The, uh, the Congress did tackle, try to tackle, uh, payment reform uh, in 2014 uh, and was able to come up with what we hope will be a, a new system of, of reimbursement, at least um, for physicians. And right now in the implementation of that, of the macro rule, as it's known, Um, we are picking between this exact model, between accountable care organizations and patient-centered medical homes where you are paid to take care of the patient and your incentive is to keep that patient well, and and bundled payment uh, initiatives. And and I will say that as of right now, it looks like bundled payments are losing. Um, CMS has said that they do not believe that the current demonstration projects around bundled payments are proving to uh, save the money that they had expected that they would save. we at Brownstein actually have clients that would uh, prove the opposite, but, um, but you know, ultimately, CMS has said, we do not believe that this experiment has been uh, as successful as we would have wanted it to be, and so subsequently, we are not going to include these models in uh, the advanced payment models for, for macro moving forward. Rather, we are going to be looking at ACOs and, and, and medical homes and, and things of that like. So I think that the government is making that decision very much in the same way that you described.
5: If I could, I would like to add on to that, because I think I'm a very big pro-market guy, obviously, as the quant geek and the finance geek sitting up here on the panel, but the reality is the markets are incredibly intuitive. So it's wonderful that you just highlighted that, but I would tell you the private equity community that puts money into the marketplace already knew the capitation was going to win. If you look at where things are being valued in the marketplace, it is size agnostic from a capitation perspective in terms of Dollars that are going into that. You can be a primary care physician out there regardless of the size of your practice and you will trade at a significant premium relative to any other solution that's out there because the marketplace, the capital, believes in capitation. They want you to be a participant in the solution that you're offering. And the best way for you to participate, unfortunately, because it's still America, is through capitalism, through the the ability to actually make money.
1: So you were going to get the next question anyway. I'm glad you jumped in. I was in. trying to
5: subvert that to the next question. But.
1: Wanted to get your thoughts. You're going to like it. It's a softball. Okay. okay. Um, what does the investment dollar chase? So in terms of healthcare innovations, how important is having reimbursement for your
5: innovation as part of the mix in terms of attracting capital? Um, that's not so much a softball question because it's, there's a lot of subtleties around it. The reality is, if, like what I said earlier, if you can have clarity around the reimbursement environment in which you're operating, it's strongly preferable because a private pay system is inherently economically driven based on the ebbs and flows of the broader economy. Just look at dermatology, as a for instance. That's a physician practice subsector that has been very much in vogue over the last three or four years. You're seeing... Double-digit multiples of EBITDA, which kind of drives valuation, really supporting that industry. But the question is, when our economy turns down, what happens to the dermatological practice? Does it go down simply because people aren't getting as many elective procedures? Now, I would argue that actually with the aging population and the tsunami that exists from an elderly perspective, there's a lot more demand and will be a lot more demand that isn't elective in nature But it's those components that kind of impact and I think jade an answer to your question. Net-net, if you have a consistent reimbursement environment, it's better. But the reality is, and I'm not caught in between right or left here, we haven't had a consistent reimbursement environment. As good as CMS is, they are all over the place in terms of their protocols, in terms of the systems that they try to implement. You have to look no further than home health. Anyone that's paid attention to the home health marketplace, you can see that CMS will talk out of one side of their mouth and say, we want everyone to be cared for in their home. But when it comes to reimbursement, there isn't an industry that's been more cut in the last two or three years than home health. So you have to really reconcile that juxtaposition to be able to answer the question that you kind of presented.
1: So reimbursement stability is important to attracting investment. Thank you for that answer. So uh, I think in terms of a question that was left unanswered that I want to come back to, uh, Barry posited that uh, the four uh, departures from the health exchanges is really all part of uh, the eventual result of a single-payer system in the US. Uh, Phil Graham wrote an editorial published in the Wall Street Journal today uh, putting forward that very argument. Lieutenant Governor Lynn, how would you respond to that? Are we headed toward an inevitable single-payer system as a result of what's happening in the exchanges?
2: Um, so maybe I'll say, I hope we're not headed towards a single-payer system in the state of Colorado. That's number one. <laughs> because that really would be a problem. Um, I, the here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm on the record on that one, <laughs> as is the governor. Um, you know, it's interesting. There is so much uh, conversation around the exchanges, but they cover 10 million people. That's it. And that's why I think the conversation around healthcare has to be way broader. Um, and uh, I, I was mentioning, and I know a few of you were at an event on Friday in which a very esteemed, knowledgeable person said... Um, the Obamacare is causing the healthcare system to collapse, which I just didn't understand it because we're all causing the healthcare system to collapse. Consumers are causing it to collapse because they have unrealistic expectations. They pay premiums of, um, and I always go to the the great Kaiser example, which uh, I have to clarify, Octomom, right? So Octomom... We did not impregnate her, she was a Kaiser patient. She paid 12,000, somebody else did it. She paid $12,000 in health insurance uh, premiums and cost Kaiser $2.7 million. So we have to understand that, you know, everybody knows the 80-20 rule. We still have this 20% of the population that are consuming 80% of our dollars. We're not having that conversation because who's going who's to talk about whether we should be delivering babies that weigh a pound and what that costs the system because it's still a baby, right? Or who's going to talk about um, should your mom, father, whoever, have a drug that extends the length of their life by three months but costs the healthcare system $100,000? So to me, we talk about the exchanges and what's happening, and it's really not addressing the big problem. And the big problem is the cost of healthcare care and what we do about it, the underlying root cause of why healthcare is so expensive. And there are actually people who say, well, it's not that expensive because it's doing some things for consumers who want those kind of services.
1: So that frames up a great topic, which is the rise of the consumer in healthcare. So I was at open enrollment just yesterday and high deductible plan combined with HSAs, uh, not you know, divulging any state secrets here, but this is the trend. And uh, you've essentially got insurance if you blow through that high deductible. Uh, now, in theory, this insurance provider, and we won't name names, uh, they want you to go to their website and use their tool to shop for your healthcare and find the most efficient, uh, highest quality provider nearest to you using their tool. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Lynn, to your point though, this doesn't really address the million dollar baby problem or the end of life care or uh, chronic care, which we have a number of different folks in the room tonight representing that space. So how much will the rise of, and this is an open question to the panel, the rise of the individual as consumer uh, empowered through website tools and quality metrics and whatnot, and incented by their own high deductible, how much will that rein in healthcare spending? Open question. Well, I, I,
3: I would say the theory works wonderful. <laughs> it, it's the implementation part of it that's that such a challenge, and it, um, it you know, I listening to the Lieutenant Governor talk about this challenge in the health sphere, I remember the language my team was using, we were calling them death panels Um, but it gets to the notion of if you're going to have this big, full open access, fully paid for system, Mm -hmm. do you cover everything all the time? And who makes those decisions? And and the truth is, I think Michael, the, the this notion of consumer choice and involvement and concern and care, and that that in itself serves as a capitation model, basically, doesn't happen as long as we stay on an employer-based system. And, and the crux of what you know, Speaker Ryan is trying to do, it's something that when I worked for President Bush, we floated out there also, with this idea of you've got to break away You've, you've got to tie healthcare to the individual, and then give them the tools so that the comparison shopping actually makes sense to them. How they use their HSAs makes sense to them. Make whether they choose to go to a doctor or not go to a doctor is not now a matter of oh well, it's free. It's oh this counts against my deductible or whatever else. So the theory works. The current system would never allow it to happen.
2: Anyway. Hurts. and i'm gonna i'm gonna fess up and I'll, I'll tell you my healthcare story um it is so getting health care is so complicated that with all the wonderful tools you know you may not you may not understand it so i transitioned from um, a health plan where uh, a maintenance drug that i was taking cost me thirty dollars a month but i had no information about what My employer was doing And we still Many of us Don't have that information And so I enrolled In The same health plan But with a different employer This may or may not Be about me Maybe I'll start that way Um, (laughs) With a high deductible I went to pick up My first prescription And My Cost Was $1,100 So So I'm a pretty informed person, but I didn't have the information that told me. I just accepted this benefit that I had all along. So I think there's so many, whether it's prescription drugs, it's um, what procedures you could done in a hospital or an emergency room or in a doctor's office. There's a lot of other factors to it. We've all heard the stories of, well, I thought I was in a, um, I thought that service was covered, but my anesthesia wasn't covered so I think we are kidding ourselves that the average person is going to be able to enroll in a high deductible plan and be proactive and figure out all this stuff because at the end of the day most times with healthcare, you're making decisions with imperfect information or it's emotional it's it's about your child and wanting the best for your child so I I don't know how to solve all of that, um, but I do want to segue to telemedicine because you wanted that. And I do think um, I had a a great story from somebody um, where telemedicine could really help us, particularly where there are high-cost health areas, and we know there are differences across the state as well as across um, the country. And being able to have some of those options and say, you know, as you were saying, do I go to the doctor and take time off of work, incur a cost with my doctor? Is there another way I can procure that service? Or if I'm in a high-cost area, is there another way to get great care, including specialty care, without incurring the costs? So I do think telemedicine has some great promise for us in terms of how we can improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of how we deliver health care.
1: So to follow up on telemedicine, uh, it's been embraced by ACOS and folks who are responsible for the live and caring for the live and whatever happens. But on a fee-for-service basis, Medicare and Medicaid haven't been such big fans. Kate,
4: no, I mean, it's been you know it's been an incredibly complicated fight, and you know it's interesting for me to hear you talk about uh, you know high cost, high utilization areas being targets for telemedicine, because I think as you talk to people on the Hill, it is still a rural issue. Uh, telemedicine is something that is going to bring doctors, particularly primary care services, to rural providers. That's actually in Hillary Clinton's uh, health plan, is to uh, to shore up federally qualified health centers and community health centers with, with telehealth providers. And so I, I think it's interesting that we need to move the policymakers beyond just our traditional view of what telemedicine is and has been and really start to look at it from a way that they might be able to address some of the complications in the way that that CMS looks at it.
1: So to Barry's uh, earlier cynical, practical point about scoring, scoring drives everything on the hill. So scoring is budget scoring. So what is the cost of doing X or Y? There's legislation presently before Congress to expand telemedicine uh, through CMS and uh, Medicare Medicaid, and yet, as characterized pretty publicly, doesn't have a snowball's chance because the concern is this is gonna be a budget buster. Yeah. Mary? Yeah, look, and, and especially
3: in healthcare, the battlefield is just littered with the casualties of good ideas mown down by scoring. And, and I'll, I'll give you a really interesting one. So during the Bush administration, you know, we tried to do a huge Medicare reform package. The centerpiece of it ends up being Part D. So the theory of it is, okay, okay, Medicare hadn't been majorly updated since it was put into place. The advancement of pharmaceuticals in both a preventive and curative fashion were beyond the scope of what anybody could have realized in the 1960s. The theory is, okay, if I, you know, you'd say this story, if I could take this one little pill and it would reduce the chances of a major heart incident by 90%, wow, that'd be huge eventual cost savings to the system. CBO gave zero credit for that. It was, nope, we think all the behaviors stay the same, The costs are all the same. And maybe after 10 years, we'll look at this and see if there's been any changes. So on the Republican side, conservatives went nuts. We're adding new entitlement spending. It's gonna break the budget, blah, blah, blah. And in point of fact, since Part D's gone into place, every year it's come under budget because the consumer choice aspect of it and it's actually having the impact on care. So all we can do is hope that eventually Congress gets around to rewriting the Budget Act, to allow, in Washington it's called static scoring and dynamic scoring, which is shorthand and, and pretty ugly shorthand. But, you know, money decisions have impact on people's behavior, they just, it just does. And you gotta somehow be able to fashion that into the scoring, especially when you're gonna be doing healthcare.
4: Can I add to Barry's point with another real-world um, example? You talked about chronic conditions, um, and and in in the the obesity space, I think we can all agree that uh, having individuals lose weight will lead to better health outcomes. Uh, in In many comorbid conditions, um, you will see the, the their uh, diabetes is improved. You will see their uh, you know comorbid heart conditions and cholesterol, and 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 then you know moving on to knee replacement surgeries, and all these things that cost the system a lot of money. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid are statutorily prohibited from covering agents for weight loss. So any, uh, and there are actually several uh, uh, pharmaceutical agents that will assist uh, morbidly obese individuals in losing weight. But Medicare and Medicaid are statutorily, it is in the law, prohibited from covering those services despite the fact that they will cover bariatric surgery, they will cover your knee surgery, they will pay for your cholesterol drug, they will pay for your dialysis, they will pay for everything else. And to Barry's point, the problem with fixing that is that it's a budget buster, that CBO will assume that everyone in this room will rush out and take the drug and and we won't be able to afford it. And it is, it's, it's got to be a change in the way that we look at, at our policies and the way we score them. And,
3: and this is not a new phenomenon. So I'll age myself. So 1995, when Republicans first take over Congress, and and crazy Newt Gingrich has all these grand ideas about health care. And one of them was at the, that point in time, um, we were approaching 20% of Medicare costs um, were driven by diabetes, and he had all of these ideas about let 's how we can do this, how we can address this huge cost thing by putting coverage on uh, and it was mainly around obesity, and as Kate was saying, it just wasn 't allowed there was no mechanism for it to go forward without it being a budget buster, so this debate about how you score and how that impacts real life health policy, this is this is a long time debate and I would I would argue not politically appropriate because it sounds like we're whining when we talk about things like the scoring mechanisms. But if you truly wanted to influence government health policy in a positive way, you would start with the budget rules. If you could do that, oh my God, the innovation that you could let loose, the competition that you could let loose and you'd have real checks and balances in the system. You'd encourage companies and individuals to go out there and innovate and you'd be able to check fairly quickly is this working, is this not working and not be locked into this 10-year or 50-year scoring window.
2: Mike, back to your question about single payer and I realize I probably didn't give you a complete answer because I think you wanted to juxtapose the article in the Wall Street Journal with where do we think if Secretary Clinton is the president, will we le- will we end up with a single-payer system? And um, I think the answer is no, um, and maybe for the wrong reasons, which is the same reasons why the Affordable Care Act didn't have all the payment reform. Yes, there's experiments, and they're voluntary, and there's incentives, but um, you will see the Everybody, you know, health insurers, hospitals, doctors, pharma, pharma, drug company, everybody, will come out of, I mean, the fear of a single payer system I think is huge. I do think you'll see some, public, some reform in uh, the exchanges where you might see some public option um, proposals that come out of that or pooling proposals to deal with just the 10 million people who are in the exchange who are attracting a lot of attention. Now, as I said, out of 320 million people, we're all up in arms about 10 million, and I'm not minimizing the hardships that many of them have. So um, I think the forces in healthcare of a $3 trillion industry will all unite in, their, in an interesting way to fight a single-payer system, and you'll continue to see this kind of incremental reform and a lot of talk around payment reform.
4: It actually started today. There was a forum at the United States Chamber of Commerce, and the CEO of Pharma and the CEO of AHIP both publicly stated that they are more than willing to help prop up and fix the exchanges, but it, they will never stand up for a single-payer healthcare system. So it's, it's already started.
1: So on the constraints we face with scoring, just to break it down into its simplest terms, a $40 telemedicine visit might keep someone from having to go into the ER, which is $2,000 a pop, um, and yet it's viewed as a budget buster because of a lot more incidences of those $40 telemed visits. But hey, we might keep people healthy, keep them out of the ER, but that doesn't score. Correct. And so that's what we're up against in DC with the scoring mechanism. Yep. Yep. So not to be too much of a downer, but <laughs> the scoring's a challenge to innovation. Uh, the capital, Chase's reimbursement models that are stable, that's a challenge to innovation. Uh, what about wonder drugs? Is the pharmaceutical industry going to bail us out?
4: Cures are hard. <laughs> I mean, cures are very, very hard. If you, I mean, I'm sure Jason hears from people all the time who have the next big idea, or there's this something that's going to turn, turn X industry on its head. You know, in the pharmaceutical industry, finding something that actually cures a disease is very rare. Um, and so, and when it does, it is appropriately, I think, reimbursed at a, at a very high rate. Um, that being said, everything else underneath it uh, is, is inflating the system a little bit more than, than perhaps it should. And so, I think that you know, certainly there are mechanisms that, that insurance companies uh, are, are looking at in terms of reimbursement, there are mechanisms that, that the pharmaceutical industry themselves are looking at. Uh, To try and and rein in costs. Um, I don't know that it necessarily is going to save the system uh, in terms of cost, but it certainly is helping people. I
2: guess I would, um, I want to maybe think about that a little differently. So um, we're all aware, actually, the state of Colorado um, is being challenged um, for some of its decision making on the hepatitis C drugs, as are, I think, a few other states. Um, So at a cost of somewhere around $80,000, um, there is absolutely... I mean, this gets back to the conundrum of healthcare, right? It is great to cure somebody of a drug that cures somebody of a disease, but a disease that may not actually present itself for decades. So from the insurer's side, you have this crazy thing, which is all of a sudden you have $88,000 times the number of people who have hepatitis C... um, and you're shelling that out and you're not getting reimbursed for it. Um, I will tell you, so an insurance company I may or may not have been associated with in the past (laughs) (laughs) spends, um, let me make sure I'm doing the math right, um, spends about uh, $6 billion a year on drugs for everybody in that system, every drug. Last year, Hepatitis C drugs added $500 million to that $6 billion spend. The, again, the math doesn't work. The, there were no savings, so maybe there was a of savings associated with that drug being paid for. Um, and this is a business. I mean, I hate, I don't mean to sound cold. It is great to provide the cure, but the business model doesn't work. So, of course, the premiums have to go up by $500 million to everybody that has insurance. And then guess who gets blamed for health care costs? The insurance companies.
1: We had an article today about uh, Johnson & Johnson's lead product, Remicade, uh, now facing competition from Pfizer's new drug, Inflectra, which is a biosimilar And so uh, we'll come back to this if we have time after our audience snap poll, which I want to get you all in the game, uh, but the notion of unleashing greater competition in the pharmaceutical industry by uh, perhaps relaxing the standards for biosimilars and other competitive drugs that perhaps could drive down prices. So if everyone could take out your phone, panelists included, we don't want to disenfranchise the panel, and text... Uh the word brownstein two 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 three 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 and this is in your poll that's right here in front of you. This is the uh, most fun of the whole evening. So
2: you it. What would you say? oh thank you. Got it.
1: Unless of course you have
3: a blackberry that doesn't do abs. <laughs>
1: we'll get you a tin can with string, Barry. <laughs> a share, yeah. Does that mean you guys have to agree on all your votes? We might agree. Okay, so our first question, and this is entirely anonymous and no spam will result, um, or so I've been promised. Uh, Your first question is your party affiliation, A, uh, Democrat, B, Republican, C, unaffiliated, D, libertarian. Uh, some of you are voting, so I think it is. Yeah.
2: Okay. Remember to text the word Brownstein first.
1: So text the word Brownstein before you give your first answer.
2: And then you should get a, a response
0: message saying that
1: you're a good So you should get a message that says you've joined Brownstein's polling session, powered by PollEverywhere.com. All right. So uh, first question that's on the table, Democrat A, Republican B, unaffiliated C. Uh, and thus far, the unaffiliated are leading the room. <laughs> We've got uh, 17 of you, 13 Republicans, 11 Democrats, Uh, two libertarians. Go, Gary Johnson. All right, so next question. In this fall's elections, which way are you leaning if the election were held today? Classic polling question. Uh, A, Donald Trump. B, Hillary Clinton. C, Gary Johnson. D, not voting. And, uh, wow, we have a clear leader in the room and it's Gary Johnson No <laughs> We have Hillary Clinton At uh, 33 Donald Trump at 7 someone just changed their vote
2: <laughs> what Don't let today? us affect you
1: <laughs> Gary Johnson's got 6 votes And not voting 3 uh, Somebody needs to talk to those 3 people Those could be the deciding votes The theoretical hanging chads Do it it for the
3: down-ballot races. Even if you skip the presidential, think of those poor boys and girls that are out there running for county commissioner and state rep and congressman. Go vote.
1: There's a message of hope from Barry. (laughs) That's patriotic. Will health care issues impact your vote? Uh, A, some. B, significantly. Or C, not at all. And you don't need to curry favor with the panelists. Okay, we're at uh, 29 and growing for some. 12 for significantly. Nine, not at all. And we'll keep this moving. So question four. Your connection to the healthcare industry. A, provider, medical services company. B, payor company. C, owner, investor in healthcare companies. Realizing there's some overlap here, this is like one of those tricky Standardized test where you pick the best answer for you. Uh, D, professional, legal, banking, investment banking, accounting. E, pharmaceutical, medical devices, company, or health IT. And we're going to close the polls here in just one moment. okay well we have a lot of professionals that was a pretty uh, wide umbrella with that one uh 28 professionals 15 providers one payor uh, three owner investors and one pharmaceutical medical devices or health i.t uh so that's a, a lot of providers and a lot of professionals moving right along question five do you believe that the affordable care act will ultimately be viewed as a landmark legislative accomplishment And the votes are already piling up. Barry, I know some of those are yours in case. Uh, Should be repealed and replaced. B. Did not go far enough to contain costs. C. Should have gone further toward a single-payer system. D. Uh, Bernie Sanders is out here telling us that's the case. And we're going to close the polls. Uh, 31 of us, 32 now, Uh, believe that, C. it did not go far enough to contain costs. Uh, Nine people think it will be viewed as a landmark legislative accomplishment. Four of you think it should be repealed and replaced. And three of you think we should have gone further toward a single-payer system. Uh, Sort of your classic bell curve in American politics. I mean, four repeal and replace and three single-payer, and a lot of people thinking we need to ratchet down costs. Question six, the number one challenge with the Affordable Care Act. None. Good law. People complaining are just political opponents. Uh, B, not enough choice on the health exchanges. C, insufficient cost controls. Or D, too much being done through regulations. And we've got a runaway winner here. We're going to close the polls in a moment. Uh, no one in the room has said, uh, no problems, good law. <laughs> one person said not enough choice on the health exchanges. 38 people said insufficient cost controls, and 10 people said too much being done through regulations. So moving right along, the best way to reduce health care spending, and the panelists, by the way, are going to get to uh, debate and reflect on these results. The best way to reduce healthcare spending: a, mergers, partnerships, and consolidation in the healthcare industry; b, accountable care organizations and integrated care systems—that's our capitation term; uh, c, bundled payments; d, information technology; e, innovation through new drugs and/or new medical devices. And we're going to close the polls here. Uh, we have another runaway winner. Uh, Mergers, which I I will probably be fired by my managing partners. I didn't vote for mergers, (laughs) even though they are my livelihood. Uh, We only have four votes for mergers and partnerships. Uh, We have 31 votes for camel care organizations, so capitation. Uh, Three votes for bundled payments, so that reflecting uh, either Jason's theory or general market trends. And four votes for information technology, five votes for innovation through new drugs and new medical devices. So runaway winner for ACOs. Question eight, the top driver of healthcare spending. A, poor communication coordination among disparate providers. B, paperwork required generated by payors and regulations. C, well-intentioned physicians over-prescribing treatments, drugs, and devices. D, outright fraud and abuse. Somebody call the Department of Justice, or E, uh, medical malpractice yeah. litigation. And we're going to close the polls here in just a moment. We've got another runaway here. Uh, Twenty-three folks voted for poor communication coordination among disparate providers. Uh, Again, going back arguably to that capitation, the argument for capitation and the ACO model. Five folks uh, believe paperwork is a problem. Eleven uh, said well-intentioned physicians over-prescribing. Two people said outright fraud and abuse. Uh, They're with the government. They'll be investigating us all later. And uh, six people said medical malpractice litigation, which we haven't gotten to that third rail yet tonight. Question nine accountable care organizations and integrated care systems. Uh, and remember, you pick the best answer for you. There's more than one right answer, but pick the best one for you. A, opportunity to drive better patient outcomes at lower cost. B, risk violation of important laws such as corporate practice of medicine and a kickback, stark. C, are simply a new version of the HMO and quality and patient choice may suffer. And we're going to close our polls. Another runaway win for ACOs. Uh, We are up to 35 votes and counting for opportunity to drive better patient outcomes at lower costs. Uh, Only two people Uh, The two regulatory attorneys probably said risk violation of important laws, (laughs) such as corporate practice of medicine and anti-kickback. That's probably Sharon Caulfield and Emily Weber in our front row there. Uh, And then C, uh, simply a new version of the HMO, quality and patient choice may suffer. Uh, Eight people are concerned about that, chiefly. Question 10, mergers, partnerships, and consolidation in the healthcare industry. Uh, A, are an important tool to drive efficiencies, including better patient outcomes at lower costs. B, pose antitrust and other concerns and quality and patient choice may suffer. C, are unnecessary to contain costs. Efficiencies can be obtained through other means. That would be uh, Deborah Feinstein from the FTC uh, taking that position. Uh, And then D, are a passing fad. All right, we're going to close the polls. This one's a close vote. Uh, All hanging chads being tallied at this time. We have 20 people saying uh, that mergers and partnerships and consolidation are an important tool to drive efficiencies. 16 people are concerned that they pose antitrust and other concerns, and quality and patient choice may suffer. Um, Pretty much reflecting the... The bid ask on the whole topic of mergers and consolidation and why the FTC and DOJ view it as their um, sacred role to make sure that the consumer doesn't suffer. Uh, Six people said are unnecessary to contain costs. Efficiencies can be obtained through other means. Uh, One person said passing FAD. So I'm glad we included that choice. (laughs) I want to make sure that one person was enfranchised high drug prices represent, now this is a trick question. I could have included choice C somewhere in between, but you've got to pick the answer that's best for you. So high drug prices represent a fair return on investment for companies making substantial investments in drugs that can enhance quality of life or B, price gouging that should be curbed through legislative action. This is a tight race, folks. Everybody voting? Everybody voting? It's very close. It's moving back and forth. I'm not kidding you. These bars are going back and forth. Uh, I think our final vote tally is 26 people think a fair return on investment, uh, and 21 people think price gouging that should be curbed through legislative action. Even split there. Now we get into some really tough stuff. Price gouging wasn't tough enough. Uh, So here in Colorado, Proposition 106 to allow medical aid in dying to those who are terminally ill as confirmed by two physicians. Uh, So Lieutenant Governor Lynn alluded to the million dollar babies, beginning of life, uh, end of life care, and pile on with chronic conditions. And and those are three areas that are costing enormous amounts in the system. Uh, So this at least is tangentially related. We're going to Close the polls in a moment here, and we've got a real runaway win, Um, 39 yes votes uh, for Proposition 106, now 41, uh, 5 no votes. So if this room is any indication, Prop 106 may well pass this fall. Question 13. Amendment 69. Create and implement a state single payer to administer the health system in Colorado paid for by a tax increase of $25 billion in the first year. Had to put that tax cost on there so everyone knows the price tag. Another runaway. Uh, This is a number of folks have not listened to Bernie Sanders on his visit yesterday. Forty-six of you voted no on Amendment 69, and one person voted yes. So, Bernie, where are you? Next question: Amendment 72, raise taxes on cigarettes and tobacco from 84 cents to 2.59 per pack to fund health-related programs, so-called sin tax.
2: In the Constitution.
1: (laughs) Okay. In the Constitution. We try to keep these nice and succinct, but good point. Uh, We have yes, 34, no, 11. Uh, Yes, now 35. So it looks like Amendment 72 will pass if this room is any indication. And just to stir the pot a little bit, as long as we're raising taxes on tobacco... So we do the same on soft drinks. Philadelphia actually passed this exact tax, uh, one and a half cents per ounce, to fund health-related programs. And it looks like we're going to tax sugary sodas. Uh, 30 yes, 15 no. Uh, The yeses are climbing still. So uh, 32 yeses, 15 noes for the state raising taxes on soft drinks, which is not actually on the ballot. So, um, wanted to leave a couple of minutes for question and answer. Uh, This is one of those topics that we healthcare nerds, I'll (coughs) speak for myself, could discuss, debate for probably three hours, uh, recognizing that all good things must come to an end. We wanted to open it up for a little bit of uh, audience Q&A. Does anybody have a burning question? We've hit a lot of different topics. Don't be shy, or we'll be forced to debate those poll results.
4: Hi. I don't know if you want me to stand up. So I had a pertinent question, and I'm glad you brought it up with number 11, the high drug prices. It seems like both Senator Clinton and Senator Sanders attacked um, drug companies for raising their prices on drugs that are... that. Um, They spent millions of dollars developing, and a lot of the drugs treat rare diseases. How do you think the election is going to affect biotech companies, startups, or other companies that are investing millions of dollars now into trying to create these drugs that might be life-saving if they know that the prices might be reduced down the road?
6: So
1: I will reframe that a tiny bit to, do we think the government will take action to cap drug prices?
4: depends on what you mean by the government. Uh, I think there are a multitude of regulatory agencies that would like to exercise their own authority uh, to make sure that, that prices are kept in check. I do not believe, despite all of the activity that has gone on on Capitol Hill lately regarding the EpiPens or the Turing uh, drug or, or valiance products, that there will ever be enough agreement uh, in Congress to act legislatively. Um, So I I think that it it is less likely that you will see that kind of an activity.
1: Regardless of the electoral outcome. So that probably gives you some comfort. Uh, Anybody else want to add on? Other questions from the audience? Mr. Richards. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, In its purest sense, insurance is a risk management mechanism. But in
3: health insurance, we have removed virtually all element of consumer uh,
0: risk. We have guaranteed issue. We have uh, controlled premiums. We have unlimited maximums. It seems that the only remaining element
1: um, that would be reflective of a person's lifestyle choices would be if they're in an HSA with a high deductible and they have some motivation to preserve their funds. Um, is
0: there any future in restoring some risk risk? element to the pricing of insurance?
2: Um, Well, so, you know, I remember a debate a couple years ago around, um, since you're, I know, an expert in a whole range of insurance uh, products. Well, if you have different rates for life insurance for men and women, which we now know is an issue, or based on other lifestyle factors—I mean, the routine question: Are you a smoker? So you pay a different rate. Um, there was even back to the um, obesity conversation—you know, some thought around maybe you have different types of rates based on that—and you know, a lot of advocates came out of the wall. And all of those conversations, which I think were happening during um, Governor Ritter's tenure, kind of fell apart. Um, I I think it is the right thing to do. I mean, many employers, as you know, have sort of done a form of that by creating um, financial incentives for healthy behavior. Um, But... I think changing premiums is probably maybe a bridge too far. Um, not that I don't wouldn't personally support it, but I think you know you're going to get a lot of conversation from different groups who would argue it's discriminatory um, if you were to do that.
1: I'll just relate a personal story. I was at a corporate industry event last Thursday night, and it comes out that I'm moderating this panel, and uh, this individual, she was. She acknowledged, well, I'm 26 and healthy. Why do I need health insurance? I said, that's right. You're impervious. You know, you're invincible. You're young and invincible, and that's great. But if something happens, and heaven forbid, you're diagnosed with something or you have an accident, insurance is kind of a good thing. Well, aren't I subsidizing all those other people with all those other conditions? And I said, right, but the 70-year-old version of you will need The 25-year-old version of you to diversify the insurance pool, and that's sort of the nature of insurance. But um, without taking a side one way or the other, it's a good moderator. I'll just share that that's part of the challenge in uh, the Affordable Care Act, is getting those healthy people in there to diversify the pool and create the benefits of insurance.
6: Mr. Chaffield. about the uh, dermatology business and reimbursements, reimbursement certainty I'm maybe in the minority here that I, I happen to feel that the public sector is being subsidized by the private sector businesses are subsidizing the public sector in a big way and secondarily maybe this is not the right forum for this but you have different forms of reimbursement in the public sector and try to have a fee-for-service business, a capitated business, an ACO business, a bundled business, it's schizophrenic. How's a provider going to operate when there's no leadership in the and this is not throwing stones at anybody. I mean, it's gone on for 1965, frankly. Um, But until we get some certainty around those issues, we're never we're going to impact cost in a major way.
1: Larry Chatfield for U.S. Dictator. Compose <laughs> uh, one solution or another. The lack of coherence, panelists, any, any way to tackle that?
2: Well, I mean, I guess you on some level, you're right, you're not asking a question, you're making a statement, which is, yeah, it's a well-known fact that the private sector is subsidizing the public sector when it comes to reimbursement. Um, And I think that, you know, and now you've got 73 million people in Medicaid, 55 million in Medicare. I mean, it is becoming the dominant payer. Um, So I... Uh, well, so I mean what 's ironic is we could have had this conversation twenty years ago as well that what happens when big employers go and say no more and they and they honestly don't because well the opposite of no more employer provided health care inevitably is, a single pay, is some kind of a single-payer or government-run system. Um, I think a lot of people thought there were predictions, some of you may remember as recently as two years ago, that employers would move in droves into private exchanges, right? That by 2020, we'd have 40 million people in private exchanges, and that hasn't materialized. So, yeah, but,
3: but there's a reason for that. Because the reason ACA passed, frankly was most of the major corporations loved the idea of being able to dump their existing and legacy healthcare costs onto the taxpayer. And if you're a CEO, you know, it didn't matter if you were Caterpillar or John Deere or General Motors, you've got this fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders. And if I can dump costs off of my shareholders and put it on taxpayers, that's what I want to do. And when those papers started circulating, a certain senior counselor to the president started calling CEOs and, and threatening them. If you release these papers, da da. da, da. So it, it had this chilling effect. And then the way that, that both HHS and CMS started interpreting rules to give incentive for the employer, the major employer community to keep their plans in place. But if, we're, if we stay on the course we're on, if you're a major employer in this country, you would be insane not to dump your employees into the public system once everything that's been envisioned in ACA actually comes to pass because it just makes sense. Why would you carry the liability if I can get the taxpayers to cover the liability?
1: Well, that's a lovely thought. Uh, I think. <laughs> well,
3: somebody's we'll, got to be the adult. <laughs> we'll
1: we'll uh, try to bring this to closure. And Larry, acknowledging your point, looking at the financial statements of any number of provider side companies, um, the cost shift is very much a reality. That there's the lucrative, preferred patients in the payor mix, and then there are those that uh, don't do so well. So your 80-20 rule and your cost shift uh, is a reality that providers face out there trying to make a go of it. Um, we have time for one last burning question. Uh, Kevin. Thanks. Uh, this has been an amazing discussion. Really, thank you for organizing this, Mike. I, uh, I, I wanted to just piggyback a little bit on, I, I believe it was Larry's question, um, I wondered what your thoughts were on the positives and negatives of a two-tiered system. Obviously, we've got a schizophrenic, you know, 10, 20 different types of payment models right now, but really a true um, model of everyone has a right to a basic level health care, and then you, as a private citizen, pay for those innovative services in a private model. What are the positives and negatives from your perspective? Thanks. So concierge medicine.
3: So, I, so I'll answer it from a political standpoint. Um, the, the theory of what you propose in an intellectual honest debate is valid. But in a political environment where people are self-selecting the news that they want, when the media reduces these major debates into anecdotal stories, it's impossible. Because as soon as you set that baseline of basic coverage, somebody's going to find a person very sympathetic who falls outside of that baseline. Well, what are we doing about this person? And then, well, what about the people that can't really afford that baseline? And is that, what if... Somebody really doesn't, you know, you know, obstetrics is going to be in that baseline. I'm a single guy. I don't need obstetrics. So why is it in my baseline? And so that debate just keeps going. And then, as Michael termed it, concierge medicine. Well, that just was horrifying. That's, now we're all going to go to the Trump International and have concierge <laughs> health
1: care. Any other parting thoughts? And there's an actual real-life example of exactly that with the hepatitis C uh, drug that ACLU brings suit, that that should be available to you regardless of your plan. So this is very much a real-life scenario. Well, you guys have been a fabulous audience. Thanks for staying with us, and thanks for participating in our poll. Totally anonymously, uh, you won't be getting any scene or other spam. Uh, and this has been fun. You know, appreciate it, and uh, please do keep in touch. And anybody looking for the capitation uh, versus bundling HBR series I'm happy to share. I know you'll be after that quickly. Uh, Thanks a lot and many thanks to our panelists. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.